Hi, you guys, and welcome to episode three of season one of a Simple Homesteading Life podcast. In case you don't know me, let me introduce myself real quick. I'm Anne. I'm a homesteader of almost seven years on the coastal side of the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. I'm also the author of The Farm Girl's Guide to Preserving the Harvest. It's an A to Z comprehensive guide on how to preserve foods utilizing every single method of home food preservation. My book has a welcome to my farmhouse kitchen kind of feel. Sit down, let's put up some food and chit chat about it. You'll also find stories about our homestead in the book and about my family. In each chapter, I include our family favorite recipes, things that will help you move on and feel comfortable before you progress on to the next chapter. And this, my friends, is the topic for today's podcast, the art of preserving food as our forefathers once did. It's during these you know, current times in which we should be really reaching deep into learning as much as we can about gardening, raising livestock, and on top of that, also glean whatever you can from those who are willing to teach you how to preserve foods for long-term storage. Now, regardless if we were in this pandemic or not, this is something that we should all learn how to do and really come back to. It's so much more beneficial than purchasing daily foods every day at the market. When you go in, grab what you need and go, you have these items on hand. As many of you guys know, I grew up with no homesteading or farming in my blood in any way, shape, or form. I was a military brat. My dad was in the military for 21 years. We traveled you know, to multiple countries around the world, and they ended up retiring in Florida, where I then became transplanted to Washington State. Everything that I know about homesteading in any way, shape, or form was self-taught. I gleaned everything I could. I subscribed to every single homesteading or farming magazine. I read the web. I, I, I must have read blog after blog after blog, government sites. Everything that you needed to know, I read. I spent the first year on the property just filling my mind with information to the point where I truly thought it was going to just implode, just implode. And I knew that at some point I needed to get this all out and start sharing the things that I knew. Um, and it all began literally, and I, I say literally because I mean literally, um, with the fact that food preservation was a big aspect in which I wanted to conquer. I wanted to be able to say that we were growing our own food and preserving it. And I knew that that was going to be the first thing that I really, truly wanted to tackle on. Yeah, of course, I brought in my chickens and the ducks and whatnot and a small, tiny garden in that moment in time. But food preservation I could do because I was able to work with local farms in our area. We have a great farmer's market, which is basically one or two in almost every single city. So it was easy to obtain foods that I could not grow or could not raise in that moment in time. So... As I was learning and gathering things, you know, my head was spinning. Pinterest was my worst enemy. The websites gave various informations and ball contradicted with the National Center of Home Food Preservation and vice versa. I mean, on Pinterest, you can find rubble canning recipes, scientific canning recipes, people who are just throwing things and telling you what to do without going into detail as to why you can do it or why you shouldn't do it. I knew that eventually I had to buck down and just get over my fears and trust myself and the information that I had gleaned and start preserving foods. I had no mentor though. There was no one. I didn't have a neighbor or a friend or a family member that could walk me through everything. So of course, you know, by the time the first jar was actually cracked open, we were like, should we eat this? <laughs> and some of us kind of looked at each other. The kids did not, but Justin and I did. And then when the kids saw that we were able to eat it, it was actually good. It was consumed and I wanted more of it and they wanted more of it. 
then the whole habits and routines and what we were going to consume and what we weren't going to assume, what we we're going to preserve and what we weren't going to preserve actually fell into place. If you can guess where I'm going with this, you obviously know by now that I got over the fear of preserving foods, mainly got over the fear of using a pressure canner and um, fermented foods and curing my own meat and things like that. And I was able to basically succumb any kind of self-doubt that I had in that moment in time and just, you know, forge forward. I didn't have anyone to tell me that the, you know, the canners weren't safe back in those days and that, you know, things were going to explode or I was going to kill someone or anything like that. And I think that that is what caused me to be able to talk about preserving foods and to write about it and to teach classes on it was because I never had that fear. I didn't have that looming fear that someone goes, oh my gosh, I knew someone who died of botulism or I knew that the pressure can explode in my aunt's house or whatever the case was. So I didn't have that underlining fear. So that made me move forward once I became comfortable with um, just a fortitude of just, I'm going to get it done and I'm going to own my food source and my family's going to come along with me. We're going to do it. Um, however, it wasn't until 2017 when I was approached by a friend to see if I wanted to write a book on preserving foods. And she knew that if all the things that I ever wanted to write in this career path that I've chosen, it would be a book on preserving. And the reason why is because I think she heard me so many times talk about my soapbox moment and saying, you know, I cannot believe that someone is scaring someone because of this canning preserving method or this fermenting method or whatever the case is. And I think I griped her a little bit too much. And that's the truth of the matter. So when she got approached to write a preserving book, she knew that, you know, she didn't want to write it. So she passed it on to me. And with that came a lot, a lot of research because you can't just sit down and write a book based on what you learned a couple of years ago. You had to truly research again because preserving methods and the scientific aspect of it changed based on funding. So you always want to double research where you're at. So I sat down and I decided I was going to write this book. And in two months, I wrote 75,000 words. I worked probably... I would say about 15 hours a day researching, writing, taking pictures, gathering photos, doing whatever I needed to do. And my, again, brain was at that point of imploding. And I wanted to make sure though, when I wrote it, that it was written in a, not only just basically about the scientific aspect of preserving foods, but also the traditional aspects of it as well too, because of the fact that we are homesteaders. We want to know the whys, you know, someone came to me and goes, you can't do it like that. I go, and you know, if you know anything about me, I will look at them and I go, Whoa, back up a little bit. Tell me why I can't do that. It's not enough for you just to tell me I can't. I need to know why. And so that was the base and the foundation of what the Farm Girl's Guide to Preserving the Harvest was really about. I truly enjoy social media. I'm one of those people that loves to see what's going on and what people are doing and, you know, even gleaning some information on there. I belong to a couple of groups on Facebook that just make my heart really, really heavy, heavy. And um, one of them would be a rebel canning group. And one of them would be what they call a canning by the book group. And, you know, if you know anything about preserving foods in any way, shape or forms, you don't get to cross those two worlds together. You either belong to one group or the other group. And so I never comment on any of the groups. I just sit there. I like to glean information. I like to wonder, oh my gosh, is that true? You know, is that, is that really a fact or not? And what I've come to find out is, is that group A and group B, they counteract each other. 
they counteract each other. There are things that group A should not be doing that group B should not be doing as well too. And, um, but then yet if you put them together at a table, they'll fight with each other through and through and through when in truth, if they just went back and actually did a little bit more research and a little bit more studying, they would realize that there is a happy medium to knowing what's going on. Now, I won't agree 100% with either group, but I will tell you that, you know, because of the lack of communication between them all, that, you know, they're not able to share information correctly or in a way that's comprehensive to people. Now, I already stated that, you know, when I wrote the book that I had to do a lot of fact checking, a lot of fact checking. Like, for example, one of the biggest arguments is going to be whether or not to leave your canning rings on your jars after they've been processed. You know, the you know, one group will say, no, you cannot. It's not approved. You're not allowed to do it. The other group says, well, yeah, I do it all the time. But in truth, here's your happy medium. The canning lids can stay on the jars. However, however, what you want to do is after you wash your jars, if you want to just rest them on there or give them a little slight finger tight twirl, allowing room for the lid to pop, it's going to pop. Because in truth, we all know if a lid is to come unsealed, it's going to come unsealed, regardless if the ring is on there or not. And, you know, some people will say it creates a false seal. But in truth, that that's that doesn't really happen because if a lid fluctuates during the temperature or whatnot, there was time for air to get into the jar, which then at that point creates mold and bacteria in there as well, too. So, you know, you have to keep those things in mind. And, you know, when you're when you're playing this game of he said, she said kind of thing, the National Center for Home Food Preservation does state that it is OK to leave your canning lids on there. However, you know, the, the group that's the scientific group will argue the point that, you know, you shouldn't. And the rebel group will argue the point that says, no, you can't. But what the real answer is, is based on science it does say that you can leave your canning lids on there. So those are a few of the discrepancies that I came across when I was writing the book. And I knew, I knew that this information had to be shared. So in the book, you'll find a lot of, okay, so this might upset some people, but here's the truth. And that's what I was able to do through the book. And I hope that those of you who actually have a copy of my book really appreciate my candidness in bringing you the facts versus just saying you can or you cannot do something in a certain way. And I wasn't afraid to upset people by saying those things. So hopefully you guys were able to value that from me and um, you were able to pick up from it. And I also always gave references for where I had gathered the information from. So again, research is key. Just because I tell you to do something doesn't mean you shouldn't go back and try to find proof of what I'm speaking of to being correct or incorrect. Always, always do your research when it comes to food preservation always do your research. Let's talk real quick about modifying recipes for hot water bath and for pressure canning. We're just going to touch bases on this real quick because I really wanted to detail with this in my book. And I hope I'm encouraging you guys to either check my book out at the library or grab your own copy or whatever the case is, but definitely take a look at what I talk about in regards to a recipe modification. So over, there was a period of time where, you know, it was stated that Pressure canning and hot water bath canning was the safest method if you follow recipes found on the National Center for Home Food Preservation or the Ball Blue Book. Okay, the Ball Blue Book. There was a time where that information was being shared. However, however, it has just been released a few years back in 2015 that 
we can now modify the types of herbs and spices we're using for canning purposes. They're giving you the right to go ahead and make those modifications that if you don't like peppercorn or if you don't like, you know, uh, dill weed or whatever the case is that you no longer have to add it. And it's not endangering the life of the person who is consuming it. You have that right to make these adjustments. This is found on the National Center for Home Food Preservation's website, and Ball has actually backed up that as well, too. The reason why they're not really publicly sharing it is because sometimes people get a little carried away, and it could modify the recipe itself, so it's better for them to be safe than sorry. But if you do some digging on there, you do not need to follow what they call scientifically proven recipes, because in truth, if you even slightly follow the recipe to a T, but then you have a little bit too much... I don't know, black peppercorn in it, it's going to alter it anyways. And so they realized what they were saying was just kind of like far-fetched and out there. So yes, you are able to modify recipes completely in pressure canned goods and in hot water bath and steam canning. What you cannot modify is the acidity level for what the food item is, meaning pickled items should be, can be hot water bath canned. However, meat does not cross over to the hot water bath canning method. Okay. Neither does fish, neither does low acidic vegetables. You have to know the difference between what is really required to be pressure canned and what is okay to be hot water canned. You can never cross that. I'm telling you as a middle of the rotor who has studied the scientific aspect of it and the traditional aspects, don't bother crossing those over. Stick to where the acidity level is and modify your recipes based on that. Like modifying soups or stews, pressure canning, but it's still pressure canned because it has meat and a low acidic vegetable in it. Modifying um, a pickled item or a jam item because it, you know, it doesn't, I don't want to use a certain vegetable like dillweed, for example. Um, so yes, they can be modified, but never alter crossing over a soup into a hot water bath canning or green beans without being pickled into hot water bath canning. Just don't do it. Who has time to stand over and watch something boil for four hours? I don't. I don't. And I don't think any other modern homesteader around here really does either. I'm going to talk about one more thing about canning before we move on to another form of home food preservation. Um, and that is going to be the use of a steam canner. If you guys have never used a steam canner, I really, 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 really highly suggest you look into one. They have modified the world of hot water bath canning to a degree that you have no idea of how amazing this tool really is. Can I say that enough? Um, so basically the process of um, canning high acidic food items, jams, jellies, pickles, marmalades, you know, all that kind of stuff there is done through the use of steam. So the steam canner is ideal for like glass top ovens, summer canning, things like that. It processes it by putting about two inches of water in the bottom pan. It comes with a rack. Your food, um, your jars, unprocessed jars goes into the canner from there. And then a dome lid is placed on top of it. Your processing time doesn't start until you see a full stream, kind of like a pressure canner, a full stream of steam releasing. And then you start your time from there. But the processing time is exactly the same as a hot water can, hot water bath canner without an extreme amount of heat, an extreme amount of water, and the wear and tear on your stove. The price of a steam canner fluctuates anywhere from $50 up to $78, depending on the brand, make, and model that you're buying. But I'm going to tell you, in 2015, when the National Center for Home Food Preservation came out and says, yes, this is a tool that's safe for canning high acidic food items. Sorry, that's my incubator going. Um, it was uh, It was just, it was 
just amazing because I can can in my home just as much as I would put in a hot water bath canner with just minimal wear and tear on my stove. And that was just incredible in itself. And the amount of heat that it released was nothing compared to what a, a full kettle hot water bath canner was. So if you haven't looked into a steam canner yet, please do so. Um, this podcast is um, transferred over to a blog post at the same time. So I will put all this stuff in there for you guys, just information links and all this stuff for you guys to try. But if you get a chance, go online and look up a steam canner. And if you don't own one, I, I would tell you buy one and use it. This is, we're getting ready to go into canning season. You should not enter it without a steam canner. I promise you, you will thank me in the very end that you have a steam canner. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the next phase of food preservation that I think intimidates people more so than pressure canning does. And that is the art of fermentation. Whenever I teach a class or have a speaking engagement or whatever the case is or write a blog on it, <laughs> this is one of those things that people just are so fearful of because it doesn't exist anymore. Fermented foods and fermented beverages are not something that's commonly found right now in your everyday market. You have to actually look for it. They're, you know, they're kind of tucked away in the health food section. Um, people know about it because they know the benefits of consuming fermented foods, but the act of actually fermenting something is so foreign to them that they would rather not touch it, not even with the 10 foot pole, which is kind of weird to me because I grew up in Asia where fermentation was absolutely everything. Everything that you ate had a fermented side dish to it. And it was something that I grew up eating because my mother is Thai. And when I talk about it, I just assume that everybody's going to be like, oh yes, I want a good gut flora. I want my immune system to be strong. I want my skin to look good. I want brain stimulation. I want all this stuff and they're going to do it, but they don't, they don't. That's the truth of the matter. So there's a fear of it because it's unknown, right? So once you can get past the fear of the unknown, you can actually proceed to be able to start fermenting foods at home. And the act and the process of getting it done is much easier than most people even think. How can I convince you guys to actually start fermenting? Tell, if, if someone can shoot me an email, send me a message on Facebook, whatever the case is, how can I convince you to start fermenting? How can I convince you that 80% of your immune system runs through your gut? It's going to stimulate your brain, your heart, your skin, and it's going to give you good gut health because it's balancing your gut core. I know I just said it a few minutes ago, but I'm going to say it again and I'm going to keep saying it because I convinced someone that those qualities, those benefits are that important to learn how to ferment foods at home. You know, it, it's just one of those things. You just got to get on your bike and you just got to pedal until you can just do it independently and then you get it done. So you're still scared. I'm sure you're still nervous. I'm sure you're still unsure of the process. So why don't we just start slow? Why don't I convince you to start fermenting some of the easiest basic items slowly until you get a little bit braver and then you start to experiment on your own for what you're going to be and what you can put up, not what you're going to be, but what you can put up. Okay. Um, kombucha. If I have to hear people say, I don't like kombucha because it's too weird flavored, you know, store-bought kombucha is completely different than what you're fermenting at home. And there's a process. If you want to just get used to drinking kombucha because you're taking a sweet tea and you're allowing it to ferment with your SCOBY and you're going to, um, allow that process to happen, you could slowly incorporate and start a customize, um, 
you know, customizing the flavor of your brew until you're able to consume it to a full balance of a full seven day ferment. I teach people all the time, you know, maybe you're not used to kombucha at seven days. So why don't you pull it at four days? It's not going to be completely fermented, but you can start getting used to the, you know, the taste of it. And then from there, pull the next batch at five days or a couple days after that, pull it at six days. Start a customizing, customizing your palate to the taste of kombucha. And then from there, start experimenting into second ferments where you're adding flavor like um, pineapple juice or even lemon juice or guava juice or, you know, you know, whatever, whatever you want to add to it, fresh herbs, make it a little bit more savory, whatever it is, you can do that through this process. It just requires getting a scoby to be able to do something like that. Another thing that's actually really great is um, water um, kefir. And that is absolutely delicious because you can flavor it with just juice that you've actually made at home. And that keeps it healthy and balanced as well, too. Shrubs. I really, really got into making shrubs this year. Shrubs are absolutely delicious. They're drinking vinegars. So you're making it with raw apple cider vinegar and you're actually infusing fruits that are in season in with the shrub. Now I like to make my shrub into a mommy juice, but if you add a little bit of sparkling water to it for the kids, they love it. So maybe drinks are the best way to incorporate fermented foods into your process. But I can promise you that a scoby is not going to be that intimidating once you learn how to handle it. The keeper grains will continue to grow. But you know why you can feed it to your chickens if you have too many, or you can gift it to friends and encourage them to move forward with it as well too. Um, I got my kids to enjoy fermented items and fermented foods by doing foods that they were going to eat in truth, pickles, fermented dilly beans, fermented pickles, fermented garlic. And then I started making my own sauerkraut. I mean, on my website, you can find my smoked kale kraut recipe. Oh my gosh, it is to die for. You guys need to go and try that. The process is extremely easy to make and I walk you hand in hand through the process and you will come to love this recipe because it's a little bit different than most kraut recipes. You could do kimchi. You could do just a basic cabbage kraut as well too. Those are great starting places for you guys. And a lot of these recipes are on my website and the process for going through it is done very casually, very confidently, and very hand-holding in my book as well, too. There's a whole chapter on fermentation, sourdough. Let's talk sourdough. Oh my gosh, let's talk sourdough. Um, you can start, or you can capture a wild yeast in order to start a, um, a sourdough um, starter, or I have a connection for you that you can get one and it's helping a small family farm. The Alderman Farms will actually sell their starters. And on top of that, they're offering um, eBooks for my listeners. And I have a code. So if you want to email me or respond to the, um, the website, when I release this blog on the website, that you would like the information for a $5 um, eBook. Or you can buy their book from them as well, too. Patty and Tommy, they've really closed in on the sourdough. And I'm going to tell you, I love their starter. I love their starter. Curing foods, curing meats, curing fish, curing anything. And in, most people will tell me, well, I don't need to cure anything because I don't raise my own pigs or my own cattle. Um, I, I just don't see the need for it. Do you know how amazing home cured bacon is? Do you know how amazing um, a nitrate free corned beef 
brisket is or being able to cure salmon, for example, or venison or whatever it is, do you realize how fabulous that meat product is? You do not have to raise your own pig or your own beef to do this because guess what? In suburban America right now, there are a bunch of butchers that sell these items. You can go buy a beautiful forest-raised, pasture-raised pig, grab a slab of belly, and basically make your own brine and smoke your own bacon. That is the benefit of living in a modern society and having those abilities to do so. Or go to your farmer's market and find the, the, the vendor that's selling beef or pork. There's always someone there. Ask him for something that's been uncured so you can try your hand at doing it yourself. If anybody heard that major crashing <laughs> that just occurred, I had to go and check it out. It, apparently someone dropped some dishes in the kitchen. So um, I apologize in advance for the noise. Um, everyone is home. All the children are home. Justin just got home. So let me apologize for that real quick. Sorry. If anyone just heard that crashing in the background, um, I had to stop recording real quick to go see what was going on. And apparently someone dropped some dishes in the kitchen. And um, I, it, this is what working from home is really about, especially when you have kids that are no longer in school and your husband just comes home from work. So I apologize in advance. I'm so sorry for all that crashing noise, but this is life on our property. I work from home. I homestead here and I run my website and my brand here. So I apologize. All right. So let's, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on real quick. So um, because curing meat is really more of a scientific means of preserving foods, I really took my time and broke down in deep detail um, in that particular chapter on everything that you're going to need to know. I even gave you some resources that you can actually pick up to help you along the process. But I promise you, if you have an enthusiast that loves to smoke food, um, I am sure that person is going to really want to try my bacon brine that I have on my book. And I will tell you, once you get started, your comfort level really begins to pro progress, just like anything, just like pressure canning or or fermenting, you know, things like that. It just progresses. It progresses. And you will get used to the idea of really curing your own items and how to store it in order to maintain it and keep it for years to come. Um, if you actually vacuum seal it properly, you can maintain it for almost two years. Really ask me how I know this. Have you checked my freezer lately? That's how I know. Pretty much everybody's had their hand in a dehydrator at some point or another. I do get a lot of questions in regards to what I think the best dehydrator on the market is and why I think that. I will tell you, I started off with a Nesco dehydrator. I think it was a square one at first, and then I progressed to the round one, and I was running three dehydrators at a time for, I think, almost a year. And I did that because I knew that I wanted to buy an Excalibur dehydrator. And they are the king of kings when it comes to dehydrating. They are the dehydrator that you want to own. And um, I didn't have the money right then and there. So I ended up saving all of our egg money that I, you know, from egg sales. And I put it towards buying one. And I will tell you, I have not looked back. The amount of time it takes to dry something in Excalibur is 
cut in half to even running three dehydrators. Most of the dehydrators are stackable with a fan on top or a fan on bottom. That's your problem right there. Most of the times you have to rotate trays in order to get all the goods to dry properly. However, with an Excalibur dehydrator, the fan placement is in the back of the hydrator, which then blows through all of your trays at an even temperature. And depending on the type of dehydrator you get, it could come digital or it can come manual, but it, the fan placement is on the back of it. The other thing that I love about my dehydrator is, is that I can raise bread in it. I can make yogurt in it. Um, I could dehydrate fruit leather in it, fruit in it, eggs in it. If I really wanted to venture into it, I could dehydrate milk in it. The Excalibur has upped my game in regards to what I actually preserve and um, what I actually dry. I do prefer to, however, do a lot of my herbs air dried because I like and I don't like it. I love it. I love the essential oils that are released into the air after clipping. I love to be able to reach up and grab my herbs, you know, as they're hanging there. Um, there's very few herbs that I actually run through the dehydrator. It's mainly reserved for like fruit and vegetables for snacking purposes for us. Or if I need to get my yogurt to rise, you know, overnight and I don't want the stove on or, you know, whatever the case is, things like that. But if you have never looked into the Excalibur, I would suggest you do so. Every once in a while, they do have a sale where they're saving like $100 on it. And um, I like to share that when, if you follow me on social media in any way, shape or form, I always love to share those sales. And that will be the time for you to grab it. it or if you have the money sitting down right now from egg sales or whatever the case is, Look into the Excalibur. I promise you it's going to up your game when it comes to dehydrating. Now, if you wanted to, of course, sun dry, you could sun dry. If you wanted to, you know, in Thailand, people sun dry. They'll catch fish, they'll sun dry it, and then they sell it as is, and then you take it home and you cook it the rest of your way. Or they'll salt the fish, for example, sun dry it, and then you're taking it home from there. So it's a form of curing at the same time as it would be drying it. So there's natural ways to dry things. I mean, you'll catch me in Jan in December with... um. I'm sorry, not December, in October before I go to conference with herbs hanging on my mantle as they're drying or herbs hanging all over my kitchen drying. I mean, it's just a common thing in my house. But look into the Excalibur if you can afford it and really up your game when it comes to drying goods. I think you're going to be very pleased with the decision to have it. And I, I truly, truly encourage people to do that. Again, another whole chapter in my book is dedicated to drying foods and the plethora of methods and able to get it done and what to look for in regards to is a food item completely dried. Some people will assume that drying foods mean that it's hard when in truth, most of the food items that we dry have a pleathery kind of leathery texture to it and it's considered dry in that moment in time. But I really touch basis on how to preserve those items for long-term storage. So you can open that can in about six months or nine months, and the food is just as good as it was the day you dehydrated it. Some people just think that putting it in a mason jar, sealing it is enough. I, you know, it's not. It's not. And I really covered deeply the method in regards to how to vacuum seal that jar and what, how many oxygen absorbers to put in that jar to keep it for six months, nine months, or one year. So really, that's the benefit of what I offer in my book. So think about that and think about the Excalibur. I promise you, you will not regret ever getting that. The last thing I want to cover is um, probably one of my biggest pet peeves of all time. I'm sorry. I'm going to say it just like that. Um, do not store 
that hard, beautiful garden goodness, the hard to gain, gather, nurture, grow garden goodness in Ziploc bags and put it in the freezer. Please, please discontinue using Ziploc bags, please. Over a period of time, even if they're freezer safe bags, you know, where they say that they'll keep out the freezer burn, they don't. So stop using them. <laughs> I say it like that because I once was one of those people who would put things in freezer bags and then a couple months down the road or not even a couple months, sometimes two or three weeks down the road, I would have ice crystals on my food items. Learn that those Ziploc bags are not worth spending your money on as far as, you know, as far as preserving food items goes. I would highly suggest that you invest in a vacuum sealer, a food sealer um, that actually, you know, you, your food goes into a plastic bag, it sucks out all the air for you, and then you seal it from there. I would suggest that you go ahead and pick one of those up. I can suggest one for you, or you can go to Costco and look at Costco's. They actually sell them there as well, too. Um, and it's the one that I actually got on Amazon. So they're the same quality. They're, they're, they have great use for them. You're going to love them. The cost of the bags is a little bit much, but is that cost factor worth eating food that you've grown yourself or purchased from a local farmer for that year out? I would say yes. Absolutely. Hands down. Yes. We use that vacuum sealer to not only put vegetables and fruit in that we've preserved, um, froze pre-free, pre that we have froze in advance and then put in the vacuum sealed bag. I mean, like we use it for stir fry. We use it just for steaming the vegetable, whatever the case is, but it has also housed, um, when I ran out of poultry bags for freezing, when we process our meat, it houses everything like that. I've used them for that purpose alone. Uh, not practical, but you know, in a pinch when I didn't plan properly for the poultry bags, it works. Um, the other thing I like to use it for, again, is for vegetables and fruit. You can use them for everything. But if you get a food saver that actually has a jar lid attachment to it, it's a little hose, it goes on top of mason jars, it will vacuum seal your mason jars for you. So when we're talking about how to preserve um, dehydrated goods in mason jars, you're going to need a vacuum sealer, a jar sealer. And if you have a vacuum sealer that's of, you know, you know, with great little traits to it, it will come with the vacuum sealer on it. You do need to buy the hose and the lid, but that's how you learn to preserve, preserve foods long-term. And we're talking long-term anywhere from a year to 18 months. Um, some things actually last a little bit longer if they stay vacuum sealed in that process. So yes, a vacuum sealer is a must for us to have, especially if we're freezing quite a bit of food and plan on eating year round. Now, I'm going to tell you, I didn't get to this point overnight. Okay, it took me one year of saying I'm going to buy a really good vacuum sealer. This year, I'm going to buy a freeze dryer. You know, I already have one, we own our freeze dryer, you know, so do you see what I'm saying? So I did not just go in and say this year, I'm investing $2,000 on tools to help me preserve my harvest. No, I did it a little bit each year. And um, I will tell you, it has saved us from purchasing goods at the market. It has allowed us to eat foods that we know how they were truly grown. And it has given us the opportunity to just really sit back and value our hard work throughout the entire year until all of a sudden the season starts all over again. 
So yes, the tools that I'm giving you and I'm sharing with you do cost money, but in the end, they will save you in regards to not having to waste the items that you spent all that time growing and raising. There you have it, a summary of my book in 35 minutes. That's pretty incredible. I spent two months, 75,000 words to write it, but I can actually summarize it in that amount of time. So if you guys do not have a copy of my book, The Farm Girl's Guide to Preserving the Harvest, you can grab it on Amazon for $16 and some change right now. It is gonna be your go-to guide, I promise you, because I hear this all the time, your go-to guide for preserving foods. I mean, you don't have to start at the very beginning and move your way through it. It was broken down in chapters for a reason because there were gonna be some people who mastered pressure canning and canning, and they were ready to move on to things like fermenting or meat curing and things like that. So you can actually go to those chapters. So take your time, go through the book. There's everything in there. If you are brand spanking new to preserving foods, you will want to start at the very beginning. You will want to start at the very beginning. And remember, this book was not written to be leaning more towards rebel canning or more towards scientific canning. This book was written as a homesteader, a sustainable homesteader would, who travels the middle of the road, who the you know, an individual who desired to know the whys of both traditional canning and scientific canning. And I was able to find that and I was able to share it with you guys. So there you have it. If you um, if you were inclined to ask me any more questions about this, you can reach me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or you can shoot me an email at ann at a farmgirlinthemaking.com. But thank you for joining me. Thanks for joining me on, chat, um, on episode three. And thank you for allowing me to talk about my book. I really don't do that very much. So if I encourage you in any way, shape or form to start owning your food source, I want to just say thanks. Thanks for doing it. Not for me, but for you. Um, I can't bring everybody into this lifestyle all at once, but if I can take a handful of you guys each year, that is what this is all about. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed this and um, hopefully we'll see some more of your photos as you tag me on Instagram in regards to preserving the harvest. If you guys do get a copy of my book, make sure you tag me in your story so I can share it. I love sharing the fact that people are now entering and owning their food source. All right, you guys, that's all I have, and I will see you next week.